Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. This morning we'll be concluding our look at John 17, which is the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ as he prays for the church. Actually, after this week, we'll be taking a break for a while from John's Gospel. We've been working our way through John's Gospel for many months, uh, but for the fall, we're going to take a break and look at some themes in the book of Proverbs, and uh, then early next year, we'll get back to the Gospel of John. This morning, I'll be reading verses 20 through 26. Please give your attention to God's Word. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. When we began this study of this long prayer, longest prayer that is recorded by Jesus himself here in John 17, when we began, I mentioned that one of the great values of this prayer is that it's a window into the very heart of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. By studying this prayer together, what we have seen are the things that he cares most about. Things that he's passionate about. Things that are priorities for him. And it's also a glimpse into how he prays for the church today. Because as he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, the scriptures tell us he is interceding for his church even as we speak. And these are the kinds of prayers that he prays for us, his church, his redeemed people. A couple of days ago, I had a meeting with a fellow pastor who was a friend of mine. And as we were walking out of the restaurant, walking across the parking lot towards our cars, he said to me, oh, I forgot to ask you, what's one thing that I could pray for for your church? I was kind of astounded how flabbergasted I was by the request. I mean, he wanted one prayer request on behalf of Oakwood Church. And I went through this immediately, started going through this long list of things I pray for at their church. I think, what would be the one thing They would ask another pastor to pray for for our church. Well, I went back to my office later. I kind of stumbled over that question and answered it. Uh, But then I went back to my office later, and I dug into this passage again, trying to prepare for this morning's study. And I was really struck by how Jesus really answers the question here at the end of chapter 17, doesn't he? The one thing that he prays for for his church. That's really who he's talking about here. He says... You know, remember at the beginning of the prayer, the first five verses, he prays for himself. And then the middle section of this prayer is where he prays for his disciples, the apostles, the 11 
that were with him. And then in these last seven verses, he looks into the future and he prays for the church. This is how he describes it. He says he prays for those who will believe in him through their word. In other words, the word of the apostles. Those who believe the gospel. Those who believe the apostolic witness. He prays for you. You, by name, I'm sure, in his mind. He didn't actually name you in the prayer, but in his mind, he was able, the Son of God, to look into the future and see you and pray this prayer for you and for this church and every true church. And what does he ask for? That they may be one. That's interesting to me because I'm not sure if I were asked that question, if you were asked, what would be the one thing that you would pray for the church of Jesus Christ, wherever it exists on this planet right now? I'm not sure that oneness would be the first thing that comes to mind. But it was what came first to the mind of Christ. We tend to think in terms of the Great Commission, don't we? If we were going to pray for one thing in the church, what we would pray for is that the Great Commission would be fulfilled, that the word would go out, that people would be evangelized, that cultures would be transformed through the gospel. And that is a very high priority in the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sure. But when he reduced his request to one thing, that's not where he went. That's really kind of an American way to think, isn't it? Results. Got to be able to have measurable, tangible results to our ministry. So how many people worship at your church on Sunday morning? How many Sunday school classes do you have? How many small groups do you have? How big is your facility? How many missionaries do you support? That's how we measure how successful we are in ministry. But Jesus doesn't go there, does he? He goes to oneness. His question is, how one is your church? Does that describe the nature of your church? The need for deep, loving oneness in the church is foundational to everything else we do. And quite honestly, evangelism, missions, growth, programs, everything else we do is meaningless unless there is that oneness at the core. That's because the message that we preach is all about relationships. We're talking about redemption, salvation. And the purpose of redemption and salvation is healing of relationships, isn't it? It's about reconciliation. It's being reconciled to the God that we have offended and reconciled to one another. That's what the gospel is all about. And that's why oneness is so important to our Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, this same Apostle John who wrote this gospel, later he wrote a letter to the churches. And in that first letter that he wrote, he summarized the ministry of evangelism that he and the other apostles had carried out. And here's how he summarizes it in chapter 1 of 1 John, verse 3. He says, That which we have seen and heard, what the apostles had seen and heard of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection and ascension, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? Why did they proclaim this to us, ultimately? So that you too may have fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
That's why we do ministry. That's why we do evangelism. That's why we do everything we do, is so that others might enter in to the fellowship with God the Father and God the Son that we have through God the Spirit with each other. That's what the church is all about. And that's why oneness is so important to our Lord. Well, what is this oneness? When we talk about oneness or unity in the church, what are we talking about? Well, one of the first points I want to make is it's not ecumenical. It's not an ecumenical movement. It's not an attempt to try to bring all denominations together under one umbrella and have organizational unity in the church. Now, if that happens through true spiritual oneness, then we're going to applaud that and celebrate that. But that's not what Jesus has in mind here. It's not what he's talking about. It also isn't the kind of unity and oneness that the world talks about. The world can't know the kind of oneness that we're talking about. And so what the, the world's version of that often is more about uniformity and conformity. Talking like each other, looking like each other, doing the same things, having the same interests. That's not the kind of unity that the Lord is talking about. Probably many of you have had the experience of being in Beaver Stadium on game day. 107,000 people, all wearing blue and white, all shouting, we are Penn State, all singing the alma mater together, all singing Sweet Caroline, I have no idea why. Chanting the same chants together, shouting the same slogans together, and after a touchdown, high-fiving total strangers. It's an incredible display of worldly unity. And I don't say it in a bad way. It's not a bad thing in and of itself. But it's really, in many ways, the height of what the world can know. But it's all based in what they wear, what they say, what they do. And unfortunately, sadly, that's the deepest unity that most people know. Being one is something that we long for because of sin. When we go to sporting events, when we go to arts and entertainment events, when we go to community events, arts fairs, parades downtown, when we try to come together The reason that that is such an exciting and enthralling experience for us, at a concert, a music concert, when people are all singing the same lyrics together to the song and and shouting praises to the artists up on the stage, it's because it scratches an itch in our soul. We long for it. But sadly, that's about the depth of what we ever experience. And as soon as we leave the event, it dissipates. It blows away like the dust. You see, the kind of oneness that Jesus Christ is praying for here, for his church, isn't about talking the same, it's not about looking the same, not about dressing the same, it's not about forming a new subculture, it's not about demographics. Have you ever, I was using this illustration the other day, kind of an odd one I never thought of before, have you ever eaten fruit cocktail? Have you ever tried to distinguish the taste of a grape from the peach to the pear, to the pineapple and fruit cocktail. I I dare you to do a blind taste test and distinguish one from the other. 
you know, they, they mush them all together in there and put them in a can and store them away, and they end up tasting all the same by the time you actually put them in a bowl and eat them. And that's unity, but it's unity in uniformity and conformity. And what's striking to me is that the kind of unity and the oneness that we have in the church that's supernatural is a celebration of diversity. We don't deny what makes us unique. We don't deny our distinct personalities. We don't deny or cover up our different gifting. What's beautiful about the oneness that Christ is talking about is that it celebrates diversity, and much more than that, it actually incorporates our diversity to produce the kingdom of God. And it's a beautiful thing. The Bible, when it talks about this oneness, it uses analogies that show that it's so far different from what the world experiences. Back in chapter 15, it described it as the vine and the branches. It's something organic. It's something life-giving. It's vital. It's growing. It's real. But even more distinctly, what you have later in the New Testament is this concept that Paul develops of the body. How the human body is such an amazingly orchestrated, mechanical, you know, just the way in which your body works is just amazing in terms of unity in the midst of diversity. And Paul just rejoices in that. That every different part, and the parts of the body are radically different from one another, yet they're all brought together into this kind of oneness that Paul is talking about that is produced by the head. Because it's the head that gives a common will and a common purpose and a common integration to everything the body does. And so he says the head is Jesus Christ. That as we are in Christ, all of our diversity gets brought together into the kind of oneness he's talking about, which is a oneness of purpose, a oneness of life, a oneness of worldview, a oneness of passion, desire that we have in Christ. The other analogy that scripture uses is the family. And Jesus actually keeps emphasizing that in these chapters we've been looking at. His relationship to the Father as the Son is such an overriding theme. And so when you think of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's, it's put in terms of a family. And what binds a family together? It's not genetics. It's a commitment, a committed love to one another, that you're going to be there for each other no matter what. And we're talking about a healthy family, and I know those are few and far between these days. But in a good, healthy family, it's a committed love combined with deeply shared experiences, both good and bad. If you're committed to one another like a family commitment, and you go through the kind of ups and downs, trials and joys that a good family goes through, it bonds you. And even the world has a concept of that. That concept of family, it's amazing. They keep trying to redefine it, but they still need that concept of family because that concept is so important to us. We need that kind of oneness with other people. Well, what is the basis of this supernatural oneness that we're talking about, this unworldly oneness? Well, the basis of, I'm going to, there's basically three things that Jesus alludes to here that are the basis of this oneness. The first one is truth. Our oneness is based in truth. Jesus says that those who make up the church are those who believe in him through their word. And the there he's referring to are the apostles. 
In other words, the apostolic witness. What did the apostles teach? The apostles taught that the Old Testament is the revealed word of God and that the Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ. The apostles taught what Jesus taught, what Jesus said, what Jesus did, and they reported on his death, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And then the apostles would go on from that point to interpret all of that and explain it all and to spell out all the details of the gospel. That's the apostolic witness. This is the apostolic witness. And so unity is in the truth. It's in what the apostles affirmed. The church is built upon the foundation of the prophets of the Old Testament, the prophets of the New Testament, the apostles, the word of God. I have all my life heard a phrase that has troubled me. The phrase is, doctrine divides. And I understand where the phrase came from. It's due to the fact that we see tens of thousands of different denominations out there in the world because we can't agree on what the Bible teaches. Or many of those denominations because they reject the Bible. But the problem with that phrase is that the Bible is doctrine. This is doctrine from the first page to the last one. And so what you're saying is that the Bible divides. And that's absolutely untrue. The Bible is doctrine. The Bible is the source of our worldview. The Bible is what we know about God. The Bible is what we know about sin and righteousness. The Bible is where we get our ethics. The Bible is where we get our values. The Bible is where we know what history means and what the future means. The Bible is how we know God. And it's doctrine from page one to the last page. C.S. Lewis, in his testimony of how he went from being an atheist, an agnostic, an atheist, to becoming a Christian, one thing he says, one of the most powerful witnesses that he had to to the the truth of the Christian faith is that when he went back to read the, the Christian scholars of all the ages and read men like Augustine and Aquinas and Luther, what struck him wasn't how many differences they had in what they believed and how they interpreted the word, but how profound were their agreements. It was amazing. And I'm sure you've had that same experience too. When you've visited other Bible-believing churches, been among other Bible-believing Christians, to see the amazing unity that we have in the essentials. Yeah, we have a hard time figuring out a lot of the secondary issues. And we don't handle it very well at times. But the scriptures are abundantly clear in the essentials that tie us together and make us one. The unity that we have is in the truth. And real oneness is only damaged when we respond to our different interpretations of the word in a sinful way. That's when our our oneness is damaged. We're going to have differences in our interpretation of scriptures because we see through the glass darkly until Christ comes again. The question is, how do we handle those differences? But when a church tries to avoid or water down its doctrine in an attempt to be more unified, And it's always been the case when that's been attempted. What they end up with is a very shallow and very worldly unity. And quite honestly, some churches are only held together by some vague concept of tolerance. That's the only thing that keeps them together. And it's no different than the unity that the world has. And it's not the kind of oneness that Christ is describing here. 
A few weeks ago, the uh, leadership of the men's group that meets for a Bible study on Tuesday morning asked me to teach on the end times for two weeks, two hours, to give an overview of the end times. I don't know why I said yes to that, but I attempted to start the study last week. I'll finish this Tuesday morning. But, you know, as I was preparing that, and I'm working through all the different interpretations that Bible-believing Christians have about end times, again, I was struck by how much we agree on. Yes, there are some details we disagree on, but the essentials we do agree on if we believe the Scriptures. And the other thing is it's such a shame that, especially in our circles, we avoid teachings like the end times because we don't want to fight with each other. And that's not how we handle our differences. The way we should handle those kind of doctrinal differences is to study them together in love because the end times teaching is our blessed hope. We are to be focused on the second coming of Christ every day of our lives. It's what we're to be living for. And so we should be digging deep into it. And yes, it's difficult to understand. It's, it's, it's hard going in terms of scriptural teaching. But what the Lord wants from us is not to avoid it, but to dig into it, but to do it with love for one another and respect for one another and humility. Because not only do we learn a lot about the end times, but we learn a lot about how to get along with one another, which is also extremely valuable. So that's the first basis of our unity, or that oneness that Christ prays for, is it's the truth. We are going to be one in submission to the truth, as he has revealed it. Second basis of oneness is the very nature of God. And he alludes to this, and this is kind of hard to understand in what he says here in the prayer. But in verse 21, he says, he prays that they, the church, we, might all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us. In verse 22, he tells us the Father has given believers glory that they may be one even as we are one, he says. In verse 26, he says that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He's tying together the unity that we have with each other. You and I have with each other as believers in Christ. He's tying that to the unity, the oneness that there is between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's saying in some real sense that in salvation we participate in the oneness between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And that the, that the oneness, the perfect oneness, the eternal oneness between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the model for the oneness in the church. And it's a source of the oneness in the church. I mean, think about it. Only Christianity teaches that God is three persons in one God. Only Christianity teaches that. All other religions either teach that God is impersonal, in other words, he's a force, an impersonal force, or that he's unipersonal, he's one person. Only Christianity teaches that he's three persons in one God. To me, that's a testimony to the truth of it, because I can't imagine a man ever coming up with that idea. But it speaks to the fact he's so far beyond our understanding. But it also points out the fact that God is eternally relational. He has always been relational. From the very beginning, from eternity past, he has always been in a relationship. We need to know that about the true God because it not only helps us understand him, but it helps us understand ourselves. In 1 John chapter 4, John, the same John, Apostle John, is 
exhorting us to love one another, which he does all through that epistle. But in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, listen to what he says. Listen to how he grounds the commandment to love one another. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The wording of that is very important. God is love. He's not saying God approves of love. God created love. God sustains love. That's not what he's saying. He's saying God is love. That it's essential to his very nature. Just like we say God is powerful, or we say God is sovereign, or we say God is just, we also say God is love. And what's interesting about that is if God is love and that's essential to his nature, that means he's always been love. How could God be love if before creation he was alone? God was in a loving relationship between the three persons of the Trinity eternally. That's what the scriptures teach. That's what the Gospel of John is very clear about. That the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been in this loving, intimate you know, mutual, glorifying relationship for all eternity. And that's the God who made us. Earlier in this prayer, Jesus in verse 5 said, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they just, they had this perfect Love, where they, they kind of they talk about it in glorifying one another. In other words, when you glorify a being, a person, you kind of orbit around them. And they orbit around each other. They, they centered their lives around each other for all eternity. And that's what we're invited into. We are made in the image of God. And that's why we have that deep drive for personal relationships. It's a deep hunger of our soul to be in personal relationships with other people because we're made in the image of this relational God. We're a reflection of that image. We need intimacy, intimate relationships, as much as we need air and water because we're made in the image of God. Materialists can't explain that. If you believe that evolution is the entire explanation for how we got here and that the material world is all that there is, They've never been able to figure out why do, we, why do we talk about love so much. We're obsessed with the concept of love. We're obsessed with relationships. To them, it, it can only be some chemical interaction in your brain somewhere. And you know it's far more than that. It's a deep spiritual need because we're made in the image of God. And this is why sin is so destructive. Because sin destroys relationships. Sin alienates others. Sin breaks relationships. Sin makes us prideful and self-centered. So instead of orbiting around God, we want the universe to orbit around us. We want everything in our universe to serve our needs and to glorify us. That's what sin does. That's what makes relationships so hard and so painful. Adam and Eve... At first, when they were first created, they glorified God. They revolved. They orbited around God. But then Satan tempted them to become as gods, to become the center of their own universe, to run their own lives, 
to seek their own ends. And they sinned. And that sin alienated them from God and alienated them from each other and destroyed the very fabric of creation that God had made. You see, Christianity is about relationships, but it's about healing relationships. It's about dealing with sin. I mean, really dealing with sin. So that relationships can be restored. So that we can be reconciled with God and be reconciled with each other. And then once that has happened, our whole life becomes about those relationships. Yes, there are a lot of rules in the Bible, and we live by rules. Rules aren't bad. Everybody has rules. And our rules come from Scripture. But when Jesus wanted to summarize all the rules that are in the Bible, he summarized it in two rules, two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. Again, it's all about relationships. That's why we obey. It's because of our love for God and our love for others. It's about relationships. The reason that there can be such oneness in the church that is unworldly, that stands out from the world, is because what Paul described as the love of the gospel, the love of Christ, is a love that is patient and kind, a love that doesn't envy or boast, a love that isn't arrogant or rude, a love that does not insist upon its own way, according to 1 Corinthians 13. That's a gift from above. We're not born with that kind of love, and the world doesn't know anything of it. But that's the kind of love that we're talking about, which brings me to the third basis for this oneness, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. Because that's where you see the glory of that love. That's where you see the glory of God and the glory of the love of God so clearly portrayed. Redemption is about relationships. It's about reconciliation and healing of relationships between us and God and then us and others. And Paul makes that connection between loving others and being reconciled to God through the cross very clear in a very familiar passage in Philippians 2. Let me read it to you again in this context. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What a glorious oneness he's describing here. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's describing this glorious supernatural unity that only the church can experience, but then he gives the basis for it in the next verse. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." You see, that's the basis of our relationship with one another. John, again, the Gospel of John, or the the Apostle John, over in his epistle, first epistle, chapter 3, verse 16, you know this verse. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It's the definition, it's the standard by which we treat one another. We are going to sin against one another, we're going to step on each other's toes, we're going to make each other mad. But the gospel is always at the center of our relationship, so there's always a way to deal with that sin. There's always a solution. There's always a path to healing. And when it happens, it's a powerful testimony. The love of the cross heals all relationships. 
Well, that brings me to the effect of oneness. And that's where we get to the Great Commission. It's in verse 21. Jesus prays there that they, the church, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He says it again in verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. When we exhibit that kind of oneness, and this oneness should be observable to the world, when we exhibit this kind of oneness we're talking about that's based in the gospel, based in the very nature of God, and based in the truth of God's word, it powerfully communicates the reality that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. He is the eternal son of God. His death on the cross did deal with sin once and for all. The gospel is true. He was raised from the dead. He did ascend to the right hand of the Father, and he is sitting on the throne today as Lord over all. That's what our oneness testifies to, because it's so different from the world. And when people, when the Holy Spirit is drawing people to Christ, and it's happening even as we speak, when the Holy Spirit is drawing people to Christ, they have this deep, matter of fact, what the Holy Spirit does, I think, is he intensifies that hunger for intimacy and relationship with God and with others. And when they're in that spiritual state and they're seeking and they're hungry and they want that kind of relationship with God and with other people and we live it out here and we show it to them in the way we treat each other, the way we forgive each other, the way we interact with each other, that we live by the gospel, that's powerful. And the church grows and cultures are transformed. That's why we must fight daily against division. And I'm not talking about organizational division. I'm talking about relational division among us. It is a daily battle. Because I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We still have a lot of that self-centered tendency in us. We're going to hurt each other. And sometimes people think like there's more division in the church than there is out in the world. Baloney. We just, we, just, we just open ourselves up to each other more. We trust each other more. We allow each other to hurt each other more. Out in the world, they learn how to protect themselves against that. But we have to fight. We have to make oneness a priority, just like Jesus did in this prayer. And we should not even worry about reaching our community for Christ or growing the church or expanding the building or getting new programs in our ministry. We shouldn't worry about any of that until we have the kind of oneness that draws people to Christ that he's describing here. What a healthy body has. The Puritan Thomas Manton said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. It's because when we're divided, when we don't deal with our offenses against one another in the gospel, it, it basically hides the gospel. Matter of fact, it makes the gospel distasteful. It makes us look like hypocrites. And why should they believe us if we act just like the world when we offend one another? You know what? Divisions in the church waste resources in the church. It wastes time in the church. And believe me, I'm speaking from the perspective who's been in church leadership for a quarter of a century. And I am, I'll tell you, after all that time, I'm terrified of division in the church. And I, you know, I say that probably, you know, I need to repent of that somewhat. I shouldn't be so fearful about it. But I've seen what it does to churches. I've seen what it does to the witness of the church. Two weeks from now, I've got to go to a presbytery trial and offer testimony 
in a case, uh, in a a disciplinary case between some elders and a pastor who basically, over a period of time, did not deal with small offenses. We're not talking talking about scandalous sins in this scenario at all that we're dealing with. We're talking about sins, ordinary, everyday sins, the kind of sins you and I commit against each other all the time. The problem is they weren't dealt with in the gospel. They built up over time. They accumulated these wounds, accumulated this baggage, and then trust broke down, and then real conflict began, and it still has not been dealt with biblically in the gospel, and so now we've got to go to trial. And I've got to spend two weeks preparing to give testimony for all of my awareness of what went on. That's a waste of resources. That's a waste of time for the kingdom. And I know for a fact that this church that is affected by this has been paralyzed and and basically incapacitated in many ways because of this division among its leadership. You've seen it. You've seen it all around the church. We need to pray like Jesus prays for the oneness of our church. We need to protect the oneness of this church. We need to make it a priority that we seek this oneness as a foundational quality of this church because the gospel is about reconciled reconciled relationships. Jesus prays this prayer for this church and all true churches today that we would be one with a supernatural oneness that is based in the truth of his word, based in the very nature of God, and based in the cross of Jesus Christ. The kind of oneness that draws people who are hurting and broken and seeking a relationship with God and other people. Do you notice how Jesus ends his prayer in verse 24? He's dreaming of the future. He's looking now beyond the church of all ages up until the second coming to what happens after the second coming. He says in verse 24, I desire that they also, the church, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. I know exactly what he's picturing in his mind at that moment. He's picturing the marriage feast of the Lamb where the entire family of God of all ages is gathered around the table like a big family and all sin has been put away. Sin is done with, it's gone, there's no vestige of it remaining. We love each other perfectly, we love him perfectly, and we're going to be like that for all eternity. Jesus dreams of that day. We need to dream of that day. What does this all mean for how we live today then? Just a few thoughts as I close. First of all, don't ever underestimate the value of worship in producing this oneness. Because here is where it's best displayed before the world. Because here is where we all as sinners, saved by grace, come into the very presence of God and reorient the orbit of our lives around him in worship. That's what eternity is going to look like, of us orbiting around God and glorifying him with each other in perfect love without sin. We still have to deal with the sin now today, but worship is where we get a foretaste of that. Worship is the best expression of it. Worship is where we share in the very presence of the Lord. And it's powerful to build this kind of unity. I I, I lament that worship is too low of a priority in the lives of God's people today. That's got to change for the sake of our oneness. Secondly, spiritual growth in your personal life is your contribution to this oneness that you need to keep growing in your understanding of the word and you need to keep growing in prayer and growing in intimacy with the Lord as an individual Christian so that when we come together, you're prepared to contribute to this glorious gospel-centered oneness that we have in Christ. 
The closer you are to the Lord, the closer you're going to be to God's people. And it always needs to begin with your relationship with the Lord. Thirdly, finally, forgiveness is crucial to our oneness in Christ. I've already mentioned this, but I just want to, I want to leave this as a parting thought. Churches, and again, from a church leader's perspective, baggage in churches is one of the most hindering forces that we have to deal with. And by baggage, I mean unresolved conflict. When we sin and offend one another and we refuse to deal with it biblically. You know what the Bible says to do when your brother or sister offends you or makes you mad or hurts you? You know what the Bible says to do? If you're the one offended, it says go, go to the other person. Go to the one who offended you. But what if you're the offender? It says go to the person you offended. In other words, both parties are to come to one another. And believe me, I am a very conflict-averse person. I do not ever rejoice in the thought of going to confront somebody with how they've sinned against me or to talk to them about how I may have sinned against them. I would rather, I've learned it from a long time ago, I'd rather just avoid that. But you know what? There's only two options. Either you go to the person and you resolve it in the gospel and really forgive one another and put it away, or you store it down deep in your heart and allow it to, to, to begin to grow roots. And those roots are called bitterness. And that bitterness will distance you from that other person. It'll distance you from God. It'll harm you spiritually, but it'll greatly harm the oneness of the church. And I'm saying this not because we're anything unusual as a church, but I can guarantee you that right now there is a ton of relational baggage in this room. Ways in which your brothers and sisters in Christ have offended you or that you've offended them, that you've not gone and dealt with it in the gospel. You've decided to just avoid the conflict, just store it away. And it's hurt this body. This body has wounds because of it. We need to make oneness a priority because Jesus Christ says it's a priority. And that as the more we express the oneness between the Father and the Son and the way that we love one another the more healthy our church is going to be and the more we're going to transform this culture that desperately needs to have relationships healed. Most importantly, the relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the challenge from your word. And thank you that in Christ we are one. And Lord, I pray that by the grace of the gospel, we would make it a greater priority in our lives that we would make relationships more important than our careers, relationships more important than our education, relationships in the church more important than the toys that we have in this life. And Lord, forgive us for the selfish way that we've tried to protect ourselves instead of risking going to one another to forgive and to love and accept one another and to exhibit that oneness that will change the world. Continue to work through us by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.